This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on your Times Radio app. And actually, today was probably a good day to be listening live as the news unfolded on this extraordinary report into Boris Johnson's misleading of the House, as the Privileges Committee found, recommending that he should have been suspended from the House of Commons for 90 days and banned from returning on a former MP's pass. So on today's episode, a bit later on, we're going to ask what should Boris Johnson do next? But first, let's take you through it, what the report says and what it means to Boris Johnson. I was joined by Patrick Maguire. Patrick, how significant a moment is this in British politics? Well, look, Zhou Enlai, who is the Chinese Premier, was asked that question about the French Revolution at some point in the mid-20th century, said it's too early to tell. And look, we'll only know how significant a moment this is in British politics and the the immediate future in the Conservative Party when, as Steve Swinford was saying, we have the number of Tory MPs who are prepared to die on this particular hill. But what we can already say is that number is probably going to be a small minority of the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And look, ultimately, take a step back. This is the end of Boris Johnson's career in frontline politics. I think it is probably safe to say that, at least in the medium term. This is the first time a Prime Minister has ever, by uh, a formal process, been found to have lied to the Commons. This is the first time any Prime Minister has been formally adjudged to lie to the Commons. I think that is the ultimate significance of this. So let's, because this is a good sort of service for people, rather than just lots of uh, commentary on it, let's take you through the report that we voiced up. Uh, This is the committee explaining why the central question of whether Boris Johnson misled the House of Commons matters. This inquiry goes to the very heart of our democracy. Misleading the House is not a technical issue, but a matter of great importance. Our democracy is based on people electing members of Parliament, not just to enable a government to be formed and supported, but to scrutinise legislation and to hold the executive to account for its actions. Our democracy depends on MPs being able to trust that what ministers tell them in the House of Commons is the truth. I mean, it's pretty damning. But, but as you say, Patrick, it's a, it's a huge moment, this. You know, some of Boris Johnson's allies criticise the sort of high-minded language, but this goes to the core of can we trust what MP... What, not just MPs or ministers, what the Prime Minister is saying in the House of Commons. Well, look, of course, uh, supporters of Boris Johnson are going to criticise what they see as pompous, high-minded language for two reasons. One, we've got very used to executives, powerful executive in the House of Commons, with the exception of the 20, 2019 Parliament, having their way. That is how Parliament has tended to work in an age of powerful executives uh, from Thatcher onwards. And it looked in 2019 like Boris Johnson, elected, by the way, on a wave of anti-politics populist, and I don't mean that pejorative, you know, wanted to come in, get Brexit done, break the parliamentary lockjam, and the MPs elected in his image are, of course, going to make that criticism. Mm. But, as you say, um, that sort of understanding that politicians would tell the truth or if they hadn't told the truth, inadvertently, would use the channels available to them to correct the House at the earliest opportunity, has always basically been implicit in our understanding of how parliamentary and political leaders work, and Boris Johnson has defied that convention. Okay, let's bring a bit more of the report. Remember, the committee, uh, seven MPs, four of them Conservatives, uh, were asking, 
did Boris Johnson deliberately mislead the Commons? Not just that he misled the Commons, but he did so knowingly and deliberately. This is their conclusion. We came to the view that some of Mr Johnson's denials and explanations were so disingenuous that they were by their very nature deliberate attempts to mislead the committee in the House, while others demonstrated deliberation because of the frequency with which he closed his mind to the truth. For these reasons, we conclude that Mr Johnson's conduct was deliberate and that he has committed a serious contempt of the House. Now, where he seems to have got in particular trouble is when uh, he... Uh, referred to guidance always being followed. And so the, the, these are a couple of the examples picked out in the report uh, of where Boris Johnson now is found to have misled the House. This was at PMQs on December the 1st when the when the first stories were emerging about uh, what had been happening in Down Street during lockdown. PMQs on December the 1st, 2021. Millions of people were locked down last year. Was a Christmas party thrown in Downing Street for dozens of people on December the 18th? Mr Speaker, uh, what I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that, uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. Uh, so that was PMQ's December the 1st. A week later, the Labour MP Catherine West asked another question on December the 8th, 2021. Will the Prime Minister tell the House whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November? Prime Minister... Mr Speaker, no, but I'm sure that in, in whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. The committee finds that uh, he could have seen with his own eyes that the guidance was not being followed. There's also the question of uh, him claiming he'd been assured that all was well and the rules were followed. Uh, did they take issue with this defence as well? But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that and that no covid rules were broken and that is what i have been repeatedly assured the committee's found that on on pressing him patrick his his definition of repeatedly is possibly twice uh, which suggests that he wasn't terribly confident in in those assurances. And look, allies of Boris Johnson point to a section in a report. Their smoking gun is there are two MPs who are close to Boris Johnson, an MP called Andrew Griffith and an MP called Sarah Dines, who were for a time his parliamentary private secretaries. And the smoking gun, Boris Johnson's allies say, is both of them said at some point, maybe some civil servants said to Boris Johnson that all rules were followed. What's clear from both those clips and those assurances that uh, Boris Johnson's allies are citing is that... You know, at best, Boris Johnson was not across the detail, could not recall accurately who told him what, when, or, as the committee has concluded, that he was deliberately misleading, that his language was imprecise in a misleading way. Because he was trying to convey the impression that there was nothing wrong with what went on in Downing Street when he, at best, knew that the there was something wrong. In fact, he'd been told by one person, you can't say that the guidance was followed. And he said it anyway. Yes, that's what you see in the report repeatedly, as Boris Johnson might say. <laughs> more than twice. More than twice, he has to take uh, references to all guidance being followed from his lines to take for any given appearance yeah, yeah. in public, be that a media appearance or Prime Minister's questions. And then, when he appeared before the committee, where he seems to have made things worse, essentially, by, in terms of the, the, what he then said when he appeared in front of the Privileges Committee on March the 22nd, uh, he was asked by Sir Bernard Jenkin about whether it ever occurred to him that leaving drinks, including on November the 13th, might not have been, in the jargon, necessary for work purposes. What, what, what did, did you say, did it occur to me that it might not be reasonably necessary for work purposes? Yes. No, it, it didn't occur to didn't me occur to for you. one second okay. that it wasn't reasonably I mean, necessary for work what, purposes. In that particular and, way, and, and then say that particular thing about the way that event was actually carried on. And I, I really, you know, uh, to this day, and uh, as, I, as I said earlier on, I, I struggle to see how I could have run uh, number 10, run hundreds of officials... Uh, who needed to be thanked and appreciated for their work uh, in very uh, trying circumstances uh, without having uh, brief farewell events of a kind that, uh, at least insofar as my participation was concerned, 
did not fall foul of the rules. I just remind you of that key point about that event. I was not. Uh, I was I was there for a maximum of of 20 minutes or 25 minutes. I think uh, I gave a, uh, a a short speech. Could I cut in? What I did was not found to have been in, Johnson, in breach of the rules. Patrick. Boris Johnson is trying to have it always there. He's at once saying it couldn't possibly against, be against the rules. He's saying there's no party. He's saying, well, of course, it's totally reasonable to celebrate or g up people with their morale. It reminds me of when Boris Johnson was facing a conference vote last year. He told a meeting of the 1922 committee, look, if you're asking me whether I would thank staff again, i.e., you know, have drinks with them, I'd do it again. And I remember I tweeted that quote. I, Boris Johnson just told MPs I'd do it again. I got a call from number 10 and said... You know, that's to totally misrepresents what Boris Johnson said, but that is his that's argument. What, that's what he said. That is, here, it's yeah. in t- that's the runs through every one of these arguments like a stick of rock. I didn't do anything wrong. I couldn't possibly think I was doing anything wrong. But by the way, if it looks like the things that you think I did, they were totally necessary. Yeah, and I'll do it all again. Yeah. So okay, let's now turn to the punishment uh, as uh, the privileges committee has, uh, has 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 laid out in this report today. The committee has provisionally concluded that Mr Johnson deliberately misled the House and should be sanctioned for it by being suspended for a period that would trigger the provisions of the Recall of MPs Act 2015. In light of Mr Johnson's conduct in committing a further contempt on the 9th of June 2023, the committee now considers that if Mr Johnson was still a member, he should be suspended from the service of the House for 90 days for repeated contempts and for seeking to undermine the parliamentary process by deliberately misleading the House, deliberately misleading the committee, breaching confidence, impunging the committee, and thereby undermining the democratic process of the House, and being complicit in the campaign of abuse and attempted intimidation of the committee, we recommend that he should not be entitled to a former member's pass. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's listening back to that. I mean, having read it, but it's so damning, Patrick. It's really damning. Look, 90 days suspension is basically without precedent. The closest analogue I can think of, there are two punishments that come close. Robert Roberts, the uh, Tory MP for Dellin, who was found to have sexually harassed uh, junior parliamentary staff, was banned from the estate for six, was suspended for six weeks, I think. Uh, Keith Vaz of washing machine and drug procurement uh, fame uh, and sex workers fame was suspended or was given a suspension of six months. So look, that gives you the three-month suspension there is basically without precedent, particularly for a former Prime Minister. And also to ban effectively, a former Prime Minister from coming and going from Parliament as they please. That is unprecedented, just like the formal verdict of a former Prime Minister lying to the House is unprecedented. So too is banning them from the parliamentary estate. The only the closest analogue there is John Burko, the Speaker, who was banned over allegations of bullying, had his parliamentary pass and preferential access taken off him. So, look, it's a really, really serious punishment. The, what Boris Johnson's allies will say is that it's disproportionate and that it's, you know, completely farcical. Uh, but it just goes to show but, how seriously... But ironically, it's, the, it's a tax like that, kangaroo court disproportionate, which is added to it. You know, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. The more that they attack it, the worse it's, uh, it's worse become. Well, we have had some reaction from Boris Johnson, uh, not on camera. It's quite interesting, actually. In the last week, uh, he hasn't actually appeared on camera. But he's been on the record questions. more than any former prime minister, you yeah. know, you know, the rare intervention, it's almost become a cliche and a joke, particularly as, you know, John Major and Tony Blair gave lots of speeches yeah. over Brexit. But Boris Johnson has gone on the record to attack people with, you know, really uncharacteristic frequency for a former Prime Minister in the past week. Yeah, but, but characteristically, oh, it's all Via about text. him. Yeah, yeah. Via, or, or text or, you know, <laughs> friends speaking to friendly yes. newspapers. So uh, we've got another colleague to voice up uh, some of Boris Johnson's rather lengthy statement. When on December the 1st, 2021, I told the House of Commons that the guidance was followed completely, I meant it. It wasn't just what I thought, it's what we all thought, that we were following the rules and following the guidance completely, notwithstanding the difficulties of maintaining social distancing at all times. The committee now says that I deliberately misled the House, and at the moment I spoke, I was consciously concealing from the House my knowledge of illicit events. This is rubbish. It is a lie. In order to reach this deranged conclusion, the committee is obliged to say a series of things that are patently absurd or contradicted by the facts. And it goes on and on and on with with with, with endless attacks on the committee. He's clearly going, you know, he's not going down without a fight. Ultimately, it's not going to make any difference, though, is it, Patrick? No, look, he's already chosen to 
get ahead of the committee by quitting the Commons. What matters now is how Rishi Sunak reacts to this. Does Rishi Sunak choose to very decidedly and aggressively define himself against Boris Johnson just as he defined himself against Liz Truss at the start of his premiership? That is the ultimate test of political judgment facing Rishi Sunak now, facing down Boris Johnson, facing down the MPs who would make common cause with Boris Johnson, the remaining MPs who are still in the Commons. That is the crucial test because ultimately... Boris Johnson is going to impugn number 10. He's already impugning the committee, you know, making jokes about Bernard Jenkins' nudist colonies this morning in his in his response. That gives you a flavour of how Boris Johnson is going to comport himself in the coming days. And Rishi Sunak has a choice to impose himself as a leader, to assert his authority, or basically say, I'm too scared of Boris Johnson to assert myself as the leader of the Conservative Party. That, bluntly, is the choice he has now. And you would think this report gives him the necessary cover to do that. Patrick McGuire there taking us through what the report actually says. Now, we continue the conversation with the columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And we say hello to Manvin Varner. Hello, Manvin Varner. Hello. And we say this week's Matthew is Matthew Paris. Hello, Matthew Paris. Hello, Matthew. And you're both here... <laughs> Uh, in the studio on a big day. Da- what do you want to talk about today? What should we talk about? Oh, it's a slow news day. Very slow. Very yeah. slow. Is there some foreign news that perhaps we could, <laughs> we could get stuck into? Uh, Matthew, are you surprised by the shocking revelation that Boris Johnson told a lie? No, no. Uh, n- nobody will be surprised, including his friends. It's, it's as they say, baked in. He, he does, and the, the, the committee have simply confirmed it. But it, one slightly runs out of anything to say about this. Do, do, do you remember the singer-songwriter, a satirical um, chap called Tom Lehrer in America? He, uh, on the day that Henry Kissinger uh, was uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, he ceased all singing, all songwriting for the rest of his life on the grounds that satire is now dead. And uh, you as a satirist are going to find it well, difficult. Well, that's what I'm to describe as a satirist. Somebody just takes the mick uh, in between the news. Um, that's uh, just my posh word for takes the mick. Takes the mick, yeah. Uh, Manvi, are you shocked or surprised? I mean, it's one of those things it, where we sort anyone. of knew it, but then it is, it's so damning. Yes, but, you know, going through the report, quite rightly, um, I mean, it's extraordinary. I I think, to be honest, I think what what Boris Johnson doesn't seem to realise is that most of the country had kind of prejudged this. Mm. You know, they'd seen the evidence, they'd seen the pictures. There was, I, I mean, I hadn't come across anybody who would say that wasn't a party or of course that didn't break the rules you know Mm. I think everybody could see that so it seemed absurd to be defending it anyway I don't think anybody's surprised by the fact that that you know this this was a massive contravention of the rules that he himself had created and that he had lied to parliament which is the crucial thing Um, and you know and Matthew's right it's not no surprise that he's a liar we know he's been sacked from several jobs for being including, a liar. Including for the Times. Including for the Times. He yeah. was sacked from the Times for being a liar, he was sacked from the Tory party for being a liar by Lord Howard, who, you know, whilst he defended him while he, while he was Prime Minister, has been out in the last couple of days, uh, you know, quite clearly pointing out that everybody's always known this man is a liar. Um, so it's not, it's not a massive surprise. I think the evidence was extraordinary. I, more than anything, I, I mean, I really hope everybody... You know, one of the things I do agree with Boris Johnson on is that this is a dark day for democracy. I do hope that everybody goes and reads that report because it's all there and it's so damning. What I'm really worried about is that people are more likely to read Boris Johnson's statement because it's sort of, it's a short precy through his eyes and it's written in a very sort of tabloid style. It's, un- it's unbelievable, I thought. I mean, it's yeah. just the least prime ministerial statement I've ever heard. Uh, it's quite unedifying. You know, he manages to get sort of references to um, Bernard Jenkins' nudist colony- colonies and, you know, yeah. sort of like it's just so personal, so vindictive. It's yeah. cheap. Yeah. You know, he took, he throws in mystic Meg references. You think, who is he writing this for? And I, I'm really worried that people will read that. This is very Trump. And that will be the version they walk away, away with. I think it's fair to say that his, his dwindling band of supporters uh, are now switching from saying it didn't happen to saying it didn't really matter anyway. N- nobody is saying yeah. that these yeah. things didn't happen anymore. And, yeah, and, and actually attacking... Uh, Harriet Harman or Bernard Jenkins, whoever it might be, doesn't actually change the facts as they've laid them out. You can have an argument about was 90 days too much, should it have been? But but it's it's very hard. You'd have to be a very, very blinkered Boris Johnson enthusiast to conclude that the 
report has got it wrong on the facts. And it's worth remembering that Bernard Jenkin has been one of the most uh, stalwart and consistent and long-standing Brexiteers in the entire Parliamentary Conservative Party. Yeah. <laughs> and he was... Yeah, and and, and I think... Um, was it William Hague early this week... Uh, remarked that because Boris Johnson was calling it a witch hunt, yeah, and he said if if it was a witch hunt, uh, which Bernard Jenkins and Ch- um, Charles Walker, the Tory MP, were involved in, uh, if if there was a witch hunt, they would set up an association for the protection of witches. These are these are so far <laughs> yeah. from being the sort of people yeah. who would mount a witch hunt. Is this a moment, um, Matthew? Do you think where we can repair politics? Is it a moment for actually maybe? Uh, does it start with Rishi Sunak and he has to come out on the front foot? Or did, did we, we stop this sort of never-ending spiral into, but everybody lies, it doesn't matter, it's all tribal, uh, we like Brexit, so therefore we like the liar. Is there a moment to step back from that? It's a, it's a very good question, and I, you could say that this is the moment at, at which the repair of politics has started. Mm. There is a privileges committee, they did investigate uh, exhaustively, they have come to a conclusion, the punishment has been meted out. Uh, So it's anything but a shrug of the shoulders, this. And it is that shrug of the shoulders that I think is so dangerous to politics. It's also worth pointing out, because people still, you know, we've got some people texting in saying that Boris Johnson's very popular. There are some people saying uh, that they always assumed he was a liar. If you look at the polling now, uh, 51% of people say he's dislikable. 66% say he's incompetent. 76% say he's untrustworthy. Um, 54% say he's weak. Uh, you know, there's no getting away. He, there was a time when he was incredibly popular, but that time yeah. is past, Mary. There's still yeah. about ten oh, yeah. ten percent that um, that say yes, you are awful, but we like you. Yeah, yeah, it's a very small and <laughs> apparently loyal band, but that yes. is by you know they're by no means the majority. And I think what was really interesting is you know at the end of his statement, he says it's for the people of this country to decide who sits in Parliament, not Harriet Harman which is fine, but she hadn't sacked him. You know, it was a 90-day suspension. He would have faced a a by-election at most, and he could literally have put it to the people of the country, or at least his constituency. But he's the one who walked away from the democratic solution to this by quitting. Mm. And I just think it's it's appalling that he's somehow calling this anti-democratic. Well, because ultimately, you know, judging by his actions rather than what he says, the fact he didn't have confidence in the people of Uxbridge returning this great Mm. election winner in the face of a kangaroo court judgment. Yeah, but you know what he'll say. He'll say, how could you expect the people of... Uxbridge to support me when they have been fed this diet of lies and uh, and, and false accusations by the media. It's just, it's very Trump. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, and I don't know what we do about it. Let's try and uh, uh, put the... the boy, Maybe boy, stop the talking about it. Perhaps that's what <laughs> we should do. Well, I suppose that's the thing, is that if, you know, if they vote next week, yeah. job done, but if by the end of next... For him to... And this is the, the, the problem with the Trump situation, to keep remaining in the news, you have to keep saying yeah. more and more mad <laughs> things. And, and actually, chances are that won't stop. I mean, I know you're asking people what he'll do next, but one of the things we're certain of is that he's bound to go and get a column somewhere. He might get a TV show. You know, he won't go away. Yeah. He will have lots of media outlets to, to get his message out. <laughs> well, let's move on and talk about something else. Uh, actually, something uh, much more important, arguably, in the grand scheme of things. This terrible situation in uh, Greece. 79 people at least have died. Dozens are feared missing after a fishing boat carrying migrants sank off the coast of southern Greece. Uh, a large search and rescue operation has saved 104 people so far. Uh, four have been taken to hospital. Uh, but they think that there, there, there may be many, many more. And, Manvi, this is a reminder that, while we talk about stop the boats in the channel, this is a problem that the, the whole of Europe is facing. People try to flee Africa. And actually, the problem... Uh, you know, Greece, Italy, Spain is much worse than the, the situation we have. Oh, much, much worse, and it always has been. Um, you know, it, it's it's closer to reach to reach those places. Um, there's been a lo- much longer sort of established routes and, and smuggling routes, um, but it's it's appalling. And you know, we know that that's the only way a lot of people can get to Europe. There aren't m- many routes for them to do it officially. They also know. I mean, you know, I, I followed um, I followed Syrian refugees when this happened in 2014 so I I was actually in Greece 
well, I, I was in Turkey and then sort of, you know, crossed over to Greece with them, followed the smugglers. Um, and it was fascinating because they all knew the rules too. And it's the most dangerous way of doing it because you get into these very unsafe boats and they know that they have to get to a certain distance, but they have no, no tools, no way of knowing where they are. And they know then they have to sort of, um, they have to deliberately do something which might wreck their boat so that they can call for the Coast Guard because that's the only way they'll be taken to Europe safely and allowed to stay for long enough to claim asylum. Um, but that's, it just risks so many lives. But, but where I, I think you and I are not, not going to agree is on, on this. They, already you hear voices from the European Commission and uh, hear them elsewhere too saying what we need to do is establish safe and legal ways for people to come to Europe so that they don't risk their lives. But if this many people are prepared to take this scale of risk in order to come to Europe, how many more people will want to come if there are safe and legal ways for mm. them to do it? We, we just can't open the gates, which is why I, I, I think Rishi Sunak's idea of, um, of sending people straight offshore as soon as they arrive onshore, I, I'm not ruling it out. I think it may be the only way. Really? So you're sending them to Rwanda? Yes. But it does mean we don't even assess whether they have a, you know, if they have a right to claim asylum, if they, yes. if they are escaping yes. something terrible. I suppose fundamentally, Matthew, the problem is they haven't yet managed to put anyone on a, on a plane to Rwanda. No. And in, unless until they do, people will think it's just not going to happen. It's yeah. still worth the risk coming here. Yeah, one doubts the British government's competence yeah. to put this policy into effect. But if it could be put into effect, I don't think it should be ruled out. That's interesting. Uh, let us know what you think about that. You can text us 87222, start your message with the word types. Um, Matthew, uh, you, let's talk about uh, the police, talking of competence. You wrote about this in your column. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a long story, but uh, I, I had what was a, 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 appeared to be an attempted abduction. I was coming back, actually, from Times Columnist's uh, dinner, uh, just just before Christmas, and I was walking from. I I, was, I missed this. <laughs> just to be clear, I have got an alibi. I was halfway across the. <laughs> was I was halfway across the Atlantic on a boat, and it so wasn't was a party, and no. it was strictly necessary. Yes. No, this was well after lockdown, <laughs> and uh, I was walking from uh, Canary Wharf Station uh, the, on the Elizabeth Line back back to my my flat in Limehouse, and a car pulled up next to me, and. The window half wound down of the passenger seat looked like he was pointing some weapon at me and shouting, get in the car, get in the car. The car then followed me. Being British, uh, I did the usual thing and took absolutely no notice and pretend, <laughs> pretended it wasn't happening and carried on walking. The car now running along beside me, I, st I, 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 I still shouting, get in the car. Then it stopped. Someone got out and pointed what... I was frightened and it was dark and my recollection is not clear but he was pointing something that I thought might be a gun at me you know a long black stick anyway and I shouted help and off they went um and it has been a long struggle to persuade the met that this was really worth looking into they said there was no cctv I went and counted. There were thirty-two CCTV cameras between wow. me and between yeah. my my flat and, and 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 Canary Wharf. And then, through a series of coincidences, we actually managed to identify the car. And then they said that the car had changed hands, but they would see whether it was possible to find out who the previous owner was. Well, I hope it's it's possible <laughs> to do that. And, and now they, they, they say they've interviewed the previous owner and he, he said, yes, he was driving, but uh, he had a passenger who was very drunk and he couldn't stop him. But, but the car had actually, we now know from CCTV uh, coverage, had actually been following me for about, about half a mile and it zoomed up and down streets in order to confront me at the right, the right place. So, I don't know, there was probably just some youths having a jape, you know, frighten an old codger. But it might not have been. And if I had got in the car, I think I probably would have been robbed or, or, or driven to a, mm. a, 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 a cash point. I, I, it worries me. Well, well, we're all very pleased that you're all right. But, <laughs> but it's another example of, you know, wonders sort of the Met's approach to this. Because, I mean, particularly given, you know, you don't know if it was a genuine serious threat. They, having not persuaded you to get in the car, they could have then... Yeah, persuaded someone else. No, it's very strange. Yeah. And I, I've terrifying. never been the kind of person that, that says, oh, the Met are all racists, they're all misogynists, they're all homophobes. I, I think most people in the Met are doing their best, mm. but it's the level of competence that, uh, that troubles yeah. me. 
Or, or sort of the level of wanting to follow things up, I think. Yeah. Because your, your experience sounds genuinely terrifying. And I think the idea that that sort of threat is out there and they're not even looking into it is really alarming. But you, know, you often find now with sort of even uh, small robberies, you sort of you tell them where to find the evidence and they just don't seem to have the capacity to yeah. follow it up or, or the willingness. I'm not sure which. And yet my upstairs neighbour, uh, uh, somebody on one of those Lyme bikes... Uh, smashed into the back of her car. She wasn't there. The car was parked, but bits of the line bike have been found. He can't have been too badly injured because he'd gone. And she reported the thing to the police. She's had two calls now to ask whether she would like counselling, but she <laughs> she wasn't there. She just found a bit of line bike at the back of her, her car. I mean, just they, have they offered you counselling? No, no, no. That's so bizarre. That's, that's weird, isn't it? But then it's, it's yeah. probably different bits or different wings Oh, yes, or they something. did. The Derbyshire constabulary offered me oh. counselling. Yeah, I've but, just forgot. But forgot. not the police where it actually happened. No, no. No. Let's turn uh, to... Uh, from from Matthew's terrifying story about not um, about somebody trying to bundle him into his car. What should you do about fraudsters? Home Secretary Swella Barman thinks people need to take greater personal responsibility to protect themselves against fraudsters. Well, who better to talk to than Alexis Conran, Times Radio presenter and anti-scam guru? Is that a fair description, Alexis? <laughs> oh, I'll take it. Sir. I'll take it. I'll take it, Matt. So, what do you think is because you've you've presented lots of programs on this and sort of you know really tried to get underneath the, the you know uh, scams uh, and fraudsters. Is she right? Is it up to us to protect ourselves? Look, um, I have to say that there is part of me that actually agrees with the Home Secretary that we do need to take some responsibility for the fraud that's happening. Just like you wouldn't leave, I don't know, your bicycle unlocked if you went to your local high street and went into a shop you think, well, hang on, I better put a lock on this because someone will pinch it. Uh, just like that, we should become a little bit more aware of the dangers that there are, uh, particularly online, cybercrime. I'm looking at the cybercrime dashboard as we speak, Matt, and it currently, for the last 13 months, we have given away £3.6 billion to criminal. And that's the reported losses. So I reckon you can double that for the amount of people who lose money but don't report it. So we're losing an extremely large amount of money. However, where myself and the Home Secretary part company is what the government are doing about it. I have been spending um, lots of time this year and last year doing a series about fraud and scams for Channel 5. And I'm speaking to victims pretty much every day and the amount of money that they're losing is eye-watering, plus the fact that nothing is really done about it. Most of the frauds that I come across, people are being given a police reference number, sometimes they get their money back, sometimes they don't, yeah. and that's the end of it. And the problem about that, Matt, is that there was a bit of research done by the Social Market Foundation, it's about 18 months ago, I should say, but at the time, they found that in England and Wales, out of the 140,000 officers that we had serving in England and Wales, 900, just 900, were dedicated to fraud. We are yeah, not yeah. taking fraud massive, seriously yeah. in this country. And actually, Manfred, there's been sort of the government's tried to claim that most crime was falling, but that was just by putting fraud over there. Yeah, basically, not by looking at fraud, because yeah. it does feel like they they haven't even really properly gone after fraud. So this is another case of exactly what we were talking about with with Matthew. Um, you know, we've we've had people on the podcast mm. talking about the fact that you know that if their card is stolen or their identity is stolen, they're able to track where people are spending their money. Yeah. There's CCTV in a lot of lot of these places. They go to the police, and the police are like, "Well, not interested." Yeah. It, it, there is a problem with us thinking, which we often do, that the banks ought to refund us or the credit card companies ought to refund us. And a lot of people probably believe that as long as they take reasonable proportions, yeah. they're, they're going to be refunded. That, that creates what they call moral hazard. If we yeah, are yeah, to yeah. take more responsibility, we'll need to face bigger personal consequences. Well, because it, yeah, you sort of end up with, um, uh, it's almost like a victimless crime then, apart from the, yeah. for the banks. Yes, you know, yeah. They get the money, we get refunded all yeah. as well. Manveen Varno and Matthew Paris, there you can read Matthew in The Times every week. And of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. Up next, what does Boris Johnson do next? Every 
Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. This is not the end. It is not the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. Well, is this the end of Boris Johnson? The Privileges Committee has released its long-awaited report, finding that as Prime Minister, he did deliberately mislead Parliament over parties in Number 10 during Covid lockdowns. So is it the end of the line for the former Prime Minister? Does he have a future in politics or does his future lie elsewhere? But let's talk through the options for the stellar panel. Quentin Letts is the Times sketch writer. Hi, Quentin. Good morning. Uh, Andrew Jimson is a biographer of Boris Johnson. Hi, Andrew. Good morning. And Katie Balls, the political editor of The Spectator. Morning, Katie. Morning. So, uh, let's, uh, let's start with how Boris Johnson has reacted to the committee's devastating findings, uh, saying that he should have been uh, suspended from the House of Commons for 90 days, has avoided that by resigning. They also say he should be barred from having a, a pass to let him back into Parliament as a former MP. So here's what Boris Johnson has said in front of a microphone this week. Yeah, absolutely nothing. Uh, he hasn't appeared in front of a microphone or been interviewed... <laughs> At all. But, helpfully, uh, one of our team has uh, read some of the statement that Boris Johnson released this morning. The committee now says that I deliberately misled the House. And at the moment I spoke, I was consciously concealing from the House my knowledge of illicit events. This is rubbish. It is a lie. In order to reach this deranged conclusion, the committee is obliged to say a series of things that are patently absurd or contradicted by the facts. So, is anybody, if any of you, uh, surprised that he's not backing down, Quentin? Uh, I didn't expect things to get quite this mad, um, and I, I, I attribute the madness to all sides. Derangement has uh, descended. It may be the heat. It may be just that the, the forest drives everyone mad. But this report today has gone to over a hundred pages. Uh, I think that's the sort of length of a report you get on nuclear warfare. Um, <laughs> and uh, the uh, there is an adage in motoring. Uh, when in trouble, take your foot off the accelerator. And I think that would apply not only to, uh, to Boris, who uh, is plainly in a terrible stick, but also to the committee. Because uh, by ramping things up, they themselves are now bringing misfortune upon themselves. And there's been the development about Severna Jenkins, allegedly, uh, who's one of the committee members, allegedly having been a bit of a party, party beast himself during uh, COVID. And uh, Johnson's response today had the line that the committee's arguments were as threadbare as one of the nudist colonies that Sir Bernard has been known to frequent at times. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> things are just getting very crotchety, very bad-tempered. Rancor is everywhere, as Roy Jenkins used to like, like to use that, that word. And um, I think uh, they would all do better to just be doing less. Um, it's, I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Bernie Jenkins thing is whether or not it is true, and I don't think he's actually said very much in public about it, it doesn't actually change whether or not Boris Johnson misled uh, Parliament, but it's just, you know, no, I suppose at this no, point, he's just... Uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't change that at all, but it does uh, create more of a theatre of absurdity around the whole thing, and also a theatre of misfortune, and I dare say that there may be other uh, members of that committee who who may be worrying that their own records are now be, uh, being dug over. You never know. Yeah, we never know. Uh, right, let's dig into some of what his options are then ahead for Boris Johnson. Uh, clearly one of them uh, is making money, and it's something that he's been or, or already trying to pursue. He knows absolutely nothing about my personal finances. I can tell you that for, for 100% ding-dang sure. 
<laughs> so, uh, we do know something about his personal finances. Since leaving Downing Street, Boris Johnson has declared earnings of more than £5 million for speeches. His fee for these events averages £250,000. Uh, he uh, has paid £3.8 million for a nine-bedroom, grade-two-listed house in Oxfordshire with a three-sided moat which I don't really understand because that sounds like it's not a moat to me. That's just a big, long ditch. But anyway, um, Andrew, uh, he's always, and you know from from having written the, the literally the book about him, he's always had a problem with money, hasn't he, Boris Johnson? He's always thought he's only a couple of meals away from the poorhouse. Uh, he had a very precarious... I mean, his father was good at getting sort of scholarships and uh, uh, and jobs with, with things like the World Bank, but they, they moved 32 times before his... Um, parents got divorced. And so it was a very, very unstable situation. And there was a feeling that they absolutely, uh, um, on Boris's, in, on Boris's part, that he absolutely had to go out and, and make money. And he is very, very keen on making money and, and actually very good at it. Um, uh, Katie, uh, there's been some speculation, you might turn up back at your workplace, you might go back to the spectator. We wait with bated breath. Um, I'm afraid that's well above my pay grade. Um, but I think there's obviously lots of talk. I suppose the talk that's been longer uh, standing is whether or not Boris Johnson will now take up a weekly column. Of course, that used to be the Telegraph. These days, the Daily Mail has quite a lot of time for Boris Johnson. So perhaps they could be tempted. He's got his memoirs coming out. out. So I think you can expect writing of some sort to feature in his at least brief post-PM career. In fact, here is some of what is to say about uh, journalism. This is him speaking in 2021. When you're a journalist, it's a great, great job. It's a great profession. But the trouble is, sometimes you find yourself always abusing people or attacking people. Not that you want to abuse them or attack them, but you, you're being critical. Do you find that, Quentin? Do you find you're always abusing and attacking people? Uh, yes. <laughs> no, no, that, 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 uh, the thing is, what do you do if you're... I mean, he's still quite young, Boris. Uh, he's not yet 60. Um, and what do you do at that age, if you've got to, I mean, you and I will probably go and eat biscuits and drink rosé. But he's, I mean, he's propelled by this uh, ambition, which is a terrible curse. And uh, past prime ministers have, uh, sorry, Lloyd George went off to, to, to Germany and called Hitler the greatest living German. That, that didn't go very well. Macmillan retired to read Trollope. He became chancellor at Oxford University, and he also chaired his family's publishing firm, and Baldwin, Baldwin, I think, is, I mean, Andrew knows more about these things than I do, but uh, um, Baldwin became a rather sad fellow who thought everyone would disapproved of him. And in his last public appearance, Baldwin heard people cheering. He didn't hear very well. And he thought they were booing him. It was a rather tragic figure. So past prime ministers, they have this difficult later life. After they've left office, what do they do? It's a very difficult question. And Andrew, I mean, what what you can't imagine, Boris Stewart, Tony Blair was on Times Radio this morning talking about his new report into regulating AI. That it, it, I can't see us having the Boris Johnson Institute uh, coming up with policy proposals for the, the great challenges of the nation. There certainly won't be a Boris Johnson Institute. Although in this book, I mean, politicians' memoirs, of course, are usually very, very boring and are designed entirely to justify... Um, what they did when they were in office. Boris Johnson's will be a campaign book, I think. It will, um, I think he'll, he's bound to try and suggest that he's learned something from his three years as Prime Minister and is therefore um, fully deserving of a second, a second go, which, of course, he will, in fact, only get if, if both the Conservative Party and probably the country in the <laughs> trouble. But then you do send for someone like Lloyd George. You do send for, for a person of dynamism and energy and the sort of can-do mentality. Um, but Baldwin got rid of Lloyd George. He said he had a morally disintegrated effect on, um, on all those with whom he came into contact. Or Lloyd George was not a peacetime prime minister. Um, and, yeah, no, Boris, Boris uh, he's... Um, yeah, he, well, the fact... The funny thing about all this is that he got punished um, very severely... Uh, in July last year, he got sacked by his own MPs. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, those of us who can see into the into the into the mentality of third-rate Tory MPs know that they were terrified of losing their seats. They thought Boris had become a liability. They knew he'd become unpopular. They knew he completely mishandled the the Partygate stuff, um, and they thought he'd become a total liability. And so they they with their customary ruthlessness, they threw him overboard, just as they threw Margaret Thatcher overboard. And that was the punishment. And that, that means that this whole pompous 
uh, and as Quentin says, extremely long report from the Privileges Committee, is completely superfluous. <laughs> very, very, very foolish. It was very foolish. I mean, they, they agreed in April last year when, when Tory MPs were already very cross with him to have to, to, to hand the thing over to the Privileges Committee. But that was on the basis he was still going to be in office. Well, he, is, he wasn't in office. So the, the Privileges Committee sort of said, right, he's been punished. We got rid of him. Our system has worked in a brilliant way that the American system doesn't work because they can't get rid of presidents who become total liability. We can get rid of prime ministers and do. And we'd, we'd, we'd done for Boris. And that should have been it. He'd been punished and humiliated. Um, and, and, and instead of we get this judicial pomposity by, <laughs> by Harriet, Harriet Harman and, and poor old Bert Jenkin and all the rest of them, um, most of the others are very, very minor figures. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a ridiculous waste of time and money. Um, just, I, mean, I know he's writing his memoirs, but there's also this long-awaited Shakespeare book. Um, yes. Andrew, do you, think, what, do you think your publishers would be so patient <laughs> awaiting... Uh, the, I mean, it's going to be quite the toe. It might be even longer than the uh, Privileges Committee report by the time he's finished it. He is very keen on Shakespeare. Uh, he can recite a lot of Shakespeare. Is it, I mean, of course, he's mocked. No one can believe he actually has a genuine love of Shakespeare. He, he, he once recited that speech by Othello, nothing extenuate nor set down aught in malice. Um, the previous line, I think, is when you these unhappy, w- these unhappy deeds relate. Um, he, he, his mind is, is full of full of poetry, including Shakespeare, I think. Um, but, of course, you'll get that book done, yeah. Yeah, I'll get it finished eventually. Well, let's, let's get back to the politics then uh, and the prospect of a return. Uh, this was him in his final Prime Minister's questions, bidding farewell to his, to his colleagues. I want to thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all the wonderful staff of the House of Commons. I want to thank all my friends and colleagues. I want to, I want to thank my rival friend uh, opposite, Mr Speaker. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. <laughs> So that was one Terminator uh, um, reference. I mean, I think we've had uh, a more straightforward I'll be back earlier this week, Katie. Is it realistic that he could return to the Tory folds, do you think? Yeah, it was quite funny that I'll be back this week to the Express because I had um, one usually quite supportive MP of Boris Johnson saying, normally he's much wittier than that. <laughs> um, there's a bit more to it with these words. It was a bit blunt. Um, so they wonder what was going on there. I mean, I don't think it's impossible Boris Johnson returns. Um, I think there's quite a few hurdles right now. Ultimately, the biggest being the parliamentary party has more foes for Boris Johnson than it has friends. Um, and to, to get on a list um, when Rishi Sunak will not want that to happen, I think the prime minister will have to face serious pressure from the grassroots, from the party from voters and then be forced into a position where it was almost a crime not to put Boris Johnson on a shortlist to be a candidate while Rishi Sunak is prime minister. And it doesn't feel as though leaving Ahmed Rao about peerages is a cause that's very easy for these uh, people to rally around. Um, So there is potentially a path. I think that clearly Boris Johnson wants to protect his legacy and that legacy is best served if the Tories lose the next election. And he can try and say, as he's been dropping hints, that the party went mad one summer, got rid of him. And since then, it was all downhill in the polls. Um, I think the problem is quite a few MPs are already questioning that narrative and pointing out when he talks about, oh, Rishi Sunak's putting up tax as well. He was Prime Minister for longer. <laughs> and he did the same thing. Well, what about the idea of, of, of him entering politics via a different route? Nigel Farage seemed to be showing a bit of ankle to him at uh, the weekend, the idea of a sort of new political party uh, to the right of the Conservatives. But Boris Johnson's got history on this. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is what he once said about uh, UKIP defectors in the past. I have read that there are some people, probably the type, who think of defecting to UKIP. <laughs> who present themselves at A&E with barely credible injuries sustained in the course of what I can only call vacuum cleaner abuse. The machines, the machines glomped on. <laughs> Such a ridiculous clip, that. Uh, which I fear he'll turn up at Toy Party Conference this autumn uh, and do a similar speech. Um, Andrew, what do you think? Is it... Is it- is it feasible at all that he could he could turn up in a in a in a different political vehicle? No, he won't leave the Conservative Party. He's always loyal to the institutions he's belonged to. He loves the Spectator, the Telegraph, City Hall. Um, actually, he never really loved the House of Commons. It's true, not a proper parliamentarian, but he certainly loves in in a funny sort of way. He is loyal to the Conservative Party. He'll want the Conservative Party to come back to him. Mm. The immediate thing is whether whether his his remaining friends and admirers, who are quite numerous in Henley will be allowed to make him their candidate. 
Um, but so finally, then let me come around, around you all. What, what's your bet as to what he will do next? Maybe, maybe you maybe you can see him back as prime minister one day. Uh, Katie, what's your what's your prediction? I think it'll be hard for him to return before the next election. Henley could, of course, try, but instead you'll see Boris Johnson lobbing a few hand grenades in from the outside and a question whether number 10 can find a way to actually live with one another. I think it's in in a way in both their interests to come to form to some kind of peace. So Boris Johnson looks like a team player for a future comeback and Rishi Sunak doesn't have quite a powerful enemy. Uh, thank you, Katie. Uh, Quentin Letts, your prediction? Uh, long term, he will write, perform and create... But I suspect he may just go a little bit stum for a while and just let people be miserable and then say, oh, we wish we had Boris around. If he'd asked me um, a week ago, can Boris come back? I'd have said no. Uh, now, as a result of all this, this terrible unpleasantness and the silliness of the, of the parliamentarians, I think it is more likely. And what really drives what is possible in politics is what the people that the voters want. And if the, if the Tory activists want him back, well, I think it might happen. There we are. And Andrew, finally, your prediction? He's not a bearer of grudges. He will want to make it up, but he won't want to make it up on Rishi Sunak's terms. So, um, but he will, want, he will want to be a peace settlement. Very good. Andrew Jimson, biographer of Boris Johnson, contributor to Conservative Home. Quentin Let's Time, sketch writer and Katie Balls, political of The Spectator. Thanks very much. Let's speak now to David Campbell-Bannerman, who chairs the Conservative Democratic Association, uh, big supporters of Boris Johnson. Morning, David. Morning, Matt. Uh, we spoke before. You were a big supporter of uh, Brexit. Parliament was sovereign. Parliament yeah. set up this inquiry. Parliament's delivered its verdict. They're going to. Parliament will vote on Monday. Boris Johnson's absolutely banged to rights, isn't he? No, I don't think. It, uh, I don't think he is actually, Matt. I I think this is a complete outrage. Actually, I think it's actually undermines parliamentary sovereignty. Drags Parliament into the gutter. Uh, the way they behave would, would be totally unacceptable in the rule of law. Um, you know, any court in the land would not allow this. The judge would be dismissed, the Harriet Harman in this case, and the jur- jurors thrown out. What is it in the report, David, which you think hmm. is an outrage? Because they've literally just written down what Boris Johnson said at various points well, and then contrasted it with the evidence well, we can what, all see with our own eyes. I mean, that they were determined to find him guilty right from the start. That was obvious. It's a political show show trial. It's like Stalin, uh, to be honest. David, maybe we, that, maybe he was guilty from the start. It wasn't that they set out to prove he was no. guilty from the start. Guilty of what? I mean, look, Lord Panic, his uh, Boris's lawyer, who advised uh, um, uh, judge, what's her name, judge Gina Miller, um, on the Constitution. Um, you know, he he's hardly a Boris supporter. But he says there was no evidence provided. And um, this is all done really on sort of hearsay and their opinion. And and it's outrageous, including, of course, Bernard Jenkins, who Guido Fawkes and alleges had a party of his own or was part of a party during lockdown. I mean, you know, it's totally hypocritical. It's a political show trial. And and it really drags our democracy into the dirt, this. Isn't the truth, David, that you just like Boris Johnson and you're sad that he's not Prime Minister anymore? That's the bottom line. And that's Boris Johnson's it's, fault, not it's, this committee's Matt, fault. This is far, far bigger than about Boris, about one individual. This is about democracy, why CDO is so concerned, because this is destroying our parliamentary democracy. I mean, it's a sham. I mean, Margaret Ferrier got nine days and Boris gets 90 days. She put at risk the lives of 400 people on a train going to Glasgow. And Boris, you know, he, he, he nearly lost his life actually pursuing the case for a vaccine um, and, and, and trying to solve the COVID problem. Um, and, you know, this is not proportionate. Um, it, it's totally unfair. And I think it's a sham. So do you, is your contention that the... 30,000 words, 100-page report, the 90 days suggested suspension. Is that the mm. problem? Do you accept that he misled Parliament? When he said the guidance no. was followed and he was told not to say that and he knew guidance wasn't followed because he was at those events, do you accept that he misled Parliament but actually all the hullabaloo is out of proportion? Or do you think that Boris Johnson is a man who told the truth? The, the, the evidence has to be that he knowingly misled Parliament. He went out of his way to lie to Parliament. There was no evidence of that whatsoever, as Lord Panic points out. Uh, and also about they invented a charge, you know, wonderful, like Cromelian. This is uh, recklessly misled. 
Um, so, I mean, they invented this. They make it, made it up as they went along. I mean, the whole conduct uh, of da this David, just wait a minute. It, it, they didn't invent, there is a... Uh, he, he, they say, he deliberately misled the House and he deliberately misled the committee and they've laid out the evidence. He was told, do not say all the guidance was followed... And he said all the guidance was followed. Never mind what people assured him, he saw it with his own eyes. He attended... That, that, that is an interpretation. I mean, you know, people get... Ministers get advisors, advice from all sorts of advisors all the time. Um, and, you know, you have to say, did he go out of his way? They have not met that test. Did he go out of his way to deliberately mislead Parliament for his own ends? There's no evidence of that. He He unwittingly misled because of... Um, the advice given, and I don't think it was very good advice, to be honest, a lot of it. But but he certainly didn't recklessly mislead. They came up with that charge, which they weren't able to stick on him. Um, and But I, I don't think there is the evidence on this, and I I encourage people to look at Boris's very robust uh, rebuttal to this, which actually makes a lot more sense. Oh, come on, David. De Boris Johnson's response today does not make any sense at all. It is all over the place, talking about um, nudist colonies, and uh, uh, actually, he's he's demeaning himself, isn't he, in the response to this? If he'd stuck to the facts and uh, the charges laid against him, that's one thing. But he's gone a bit potty with all this, hasn't he? No, I, I think, look, this, is, this was uh, set up right from the beginning. It was political. Boris is responsible for Brexit, and so he's got to be brought down. And, you know, that's what it's really about. It's a coup to get rid of Boris, nail it on him. I mean, honestly, depriving the man of a pass, a former prime minister, 90 days, not, 10 times as much as Margaret Ferrier spreading COVID all around the Glasgow trains. I mean, this is not fair. Uh, and I don't think the public are going to be at all impressed in the conduct of parliament. And any Tory MP, might, in my view, that backs this is anti-democratic, and they will face a vote of no confidence, a deselection, because members will be that angry that they will hold them to account on this. No Tory MP should be backing such a rotten anti-democratic report. Wouldn't the democratic thing to have been for Boris Johnson to stay in Parliament and then stand for re-election in his constituency? This, this, this 90 days would have triggered a, a recall petition and then likely a by-election. The democratic thing to have done was for, was for him to, to stay, make his case, fight his corner, and then people like you, who think he's still very popular, uh, would have been vindicated because he'd have won. No, I don't think so, because it, it was all loaded against him. You know, the whole intention of this was to force him into a by-election, He's called their bluff by by no, but um, David. If 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 the if the committee um, if the committee and uh, the blob or whatever it is is all mounted against him at odds with the public who love Boris Johnson still because he got Brexit done and got us the COVID uh, vaccine and so on. If it, if you what you're saying is right and the democratic thing is that Boris Johnson has been forced out uh, anti democratically, the democratic thing would have been for Boris Johnson to put that to the test and stand in Uxbridge. Well, let him stand in Henley or mid-beds or uh, another by-election. I think that is entirely conceivable. And if central office block him, which I believe has been rumoured that he's not allowed to move across to another seat, like Henley, he's got a house at Henley, um, then he might stand as an independent Conservative, which is what Zach Goldsmith did, if you remember. And then six months later, he was made a formal Conservative candidate in Zach Goldsmith's case. There are options here, and let the public, yeah, let the public decide. But in the different constituency, because one, this is so one that, one against that, Boris, one that with a bigger majority, because he Boris Johnson took that Uxbridge seat and uh, came very close to losing it last time round, and would probably lose it this time round. Because actually, it, it went out. up. Actually, it went up last right. time. And, so why um, not? So why not stand yeah, there then? If he was still that popular, why not stand in Uxbridge? Uh, well, I mean, in these circumstances, with this this uh, Stalinist trial, this report against David, David, I'm sorry, that is offensive. I actually, by the way, asked David, David, so David, David no, 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 wait a moment, David. It is offensive to people who died in Russia to call this Stalinist. It's a it's a select committee report chaired by Harry sorry, Harman. Sorry, uh, Matt, it is not offensive. It's it's. Look at the manner of it. Look at the disproportionality. Look at the... Uh, David, you can't say disproportionality. Let's say it's Stalinist. It brings the rule of law into disrepute. It brings Parliament into disrepute. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, you've got the Deputy Speaker, allegedly, according to Guido, 
holding a lockdown party of her own and drinks. Now, what's the Speaker going to do about that? I want the Speaker to have an inquiry into the Deputy Speaker and all those that attended that party, according allegedly to Guido Fawkes. That's what should be happening. Of course, you know, it's all a one-way process. It's all attacking Boris, but anyone else can get away with it, including Starmer and his rather suspicious uh, beer-swilling, uh, breaking social distancing guidelines um, up in Durham. You know, that was not properly dealt with. And this is all totally one-sided, which is why the public believe this is a coup. No, they and don't. I'm... No, they don't. Two-thirds of people would say Boris Johnson was right to resign last week. Yeah, he's right to resign in order to fight back. And I will fight <laughs> back. And he will have the last word and the last laugh. I can, I can tell you that. You know, he's a clever man. And uh, he will come back, I think. Um, and those that have brought him down are going to pay a very heavy price, I fear. Uh, and your message to Rishi Sunak this morning, David? Um, I would say I, you better give Boris a seat um, or, or it's, uh, you know, you're on borrowed time, to be honest. And just looking ahead to the Tory party conference in the autumn, do you expect Boris Johnson to be there as the sort of the, the star turn in some way? Well, he'll be there and he'll be speaking to CDO, I should imagine. Um, you know, we, we will have a big event at party conference, a democracy zone, a CDO, um, and anyone who believes in democracy and, and proper democracy is very welcome to that democracy zone. So we're on the case with this. And... Um, you know, this is about democracy. As I say, you know, I'm very concerned. I gave up my job as an MEP to, to defend parliamentary sovereignty with Brexit. And this is undermining that parliamentary sovereignty. And that, that is a tragedy. David Campbell-Bannerman, good to speak to you this morning, the chair of the Conservative Democratic Organisation. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. All of the analysis and news coverage you need on this extraordinary moment in Boris Johnson's political career, you can find that at thetimes.co.uk. And don't forget to listen to me on Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye. 